took what the Jewish people of the day had come to believe and kind of turned it on a frame. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage today where Jesus speaks against how people were living out their lives for others, how they were doing righteous things to look good and to get praise and recognition from other people, but they weren't doing it because they wanted to obey God or Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, and 16 to 18. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand... For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close your door, and pray to your Father in heaven who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Thanks, guys. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father, who is in heaven. Why is Jesus telling us to be careful about this? The word careful in this particular verse, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Greek means to watch out, to be aware, to be on guard. This isn't just a casual suggestion that Jesus is giving his followers. He is strongly warning them against something that he thinks could bring them danger. There's something about doing our righteous acts before men that causes us danger, and Jesus wants us to be careful about it. If we look through the scriptures, we can see that God has always cared more about what's going on in our hearts than what we're doing for the world to see. This is nothing new. First Samuel 16 verse 7 tells us, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And in Proverbs 4.23, we read that we're to guard our hearts because everything in our life flows from, them, from it. It is the wellspring of life, some versions read. Our heart matters to God because that's where true life has the opportunity to reside because it's our hearts connected with him and his heart that allows for intimacy with Jesus, that offers us the opportunity to experience the full life that Jesus came to this earth, earth to give us. So Jesus wants us to be careful because if we do our acts of righteousness before men so that men see them, we are putting our hearts in danger of something that could be very damaging to us. So Jesus tries to help the people of the day understand what he wants them to be aware of, be careful of, be on guard against, 
and what he wants them to do instead. And he gives those examples that we read about in our passage. Don't be blaring trumpets, letting everyone know you've done something great for the poor. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't go praying on, in the synagogues and on street corners so everyone says, whoa, look at that guy, look at them praying. Wow, so godly. No, go into the closet where God sees you. Don't be fasting in a way that everyone knows you're starving so you can put a tick box beside that person is super godly, they're fasting. No, clean yourself up, go about your day as though you're just like everyone else because it's what we do in secret that God sees and honors. That's what matters to him. I'm going to invite Mark Petke and Jamie Holbrook up to help me with an illustration about what it means to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Oops, this was all well done here and then uh, I just yanked it off, sorry, give me a sec. Okay. (laughs) So, oh, for pity's sake, okay, just a second. So Mark, Your left hand cannot see what your right hand is doing, can it? No. Okay. So what I'm going to get you to do, Mark, I've totally broken that pin, is I am going to get you to put some makeup on Jamie. So let's start. I always start with my eyes. So let's start with our eyes. Can you put the eyeshadow on, please? It's the long, skinny one. There you go. Let's get some eyeshadow on Jamie. He's looking a little tired this morning. There we go, there's the eyes. Oh, that's pretty. (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, you know what, I'll I'll put the lid on for you, okay? (laughs) All right. Now, this is looking good, eh? Yeah. So now I think what we'll do, we'll save the lips for last, Mark. So now we're going to do the blush. So... There we go. There's your blush. So if you could put some of that on Jamie's cheeks, give him a bit of color. You're going to have to really rub. Yeah, yeah. Rub your fingers in there and then just, you know, find his cheeks and what you doing? Not those cheeks. The ones on his face. There we go. All right. All right. The other cheek. There you go. That is gorgeous. Good. Jamie looks a lot more wide awake now. It's beautiful. Great. Okay, now, Mark, we're just going to end up with the lipstick. Could you put... Here, I'm going to give it to you. There you go. Put some lipstick on Jamie. (laughs) There we go. Good. All right. He's got the duck face going on. Should be good. Oh, awesome. Wow, you look beautiful, Jamie. Good, okay. His lips are nice and bright now. Thanks, Mark. All right. Can you give him a hand? Great job. Okay. Good stuff. What does it tell us about our God that he would rather that mess where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing? (laughs) Thank you than the perfection that can come when the left hand does know what the right hand is doing. 
What does that tell us about our God? You know, you could insert any activity in there, couldn't you? If you tried to make supper with the left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing, if you tried to do your hair, if you tried to drive your car, tried to change your oil, tried to play Xbox, tried to type on the computer, tried to do a science experiment in school or participate in gym or music class, anything that we try to do where our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing will not produce a pretty product. This is a really strong message about what Jesus is saying matters in the kingdom of God and what he is saying doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. Those empty acts, those things that we do so that we look the outside, so that we appear righteous, so that we get the praise of others, our passage tells us there is no reward for them. We might be able to fool ourselves, we might be able to fool other people, but we cannot fool God. He knows the difference. He can tell the difference between when we're doing something to please him and when we're doing something because we look good to other people. The only thing that matters to him is what we do in secret before him to please him. That is where we will get our reward. And I don't think the reward that we're talking about here is just going to heaven and getting jewels in our crown like the Bible talks about. I think we actually get to experience his rewards here on earth. That's part of the kingdom experience. We get to experience his presence, his love for us, his pleasure and favor for us. When we experience peace that passes all understanding, that guards our heart and minds in Christ Jesus, we are experiencing his reward for a heart surrendered in secret to him. When we have joy that's inexplicable given our situation or the circumstances that we're in, that's his reward for our heart before him in secret. And anyone who has experienced his reward will tell you there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. I think that's why the psalmist said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Because his reward is like nothing else here on this earth. But this isn't even just about rewards. That's the thing. This is about how much Jesus loves us. So he wants to protect us. He knows that when we're doing our acts before men to be seen by men, we're engaging in a kind of living that could bring harm to us, that could bring destruction to us. And so he is trying to protect us from that. He knows we have an enemy that's prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus does not want us devoured. He doesn't want us bitten. He doesn't want us licked. He doesn't even want us sniffed out by that lion. And so he says, beware, be careful, be on guard, because living for the praise and the approval of others is danger. It's a trap, and it is so easily something that we can get entangled in. Because let's be honest, 
feels good. It's appealing. It feels good to have someone think highly of us. To have positive thoughts about us, to talk well of us. That appeals to our egos. But it's an invitation into a trap that that lion is sitting beside drooling, waiting for us. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Psalm 18, 27 says, You save the humble, but you bring low those whose eyes are haughty. See, in this passage that Charlie and Caleb read to us, Jesus is telling us to be careful about pride. It's pride that causes us to be more concerned with what everybody else thinks about us than what's going on inside our hearts. It's pride that wants the approval and the recognition and the appraise of others. It's pride, and it leads to destruction, to a fall. So Jesus says, be careful. Be careful, it's so dangerous. Pride is one of the classic and most effective ways the enemy exacts his destruction against us because very often it becomes so insidious and it creeps up so subtly we don't even realize it's happening. Especially when it looks like righteousness. We just think we're doing good because we look the part. We're not aware something has hold of us, of the enemy. Paul warns the Colossians about this in Colossians 2, verse 8. He says to it, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Paul had seen it is so easy for the enemy to get our focus off of Jesus Christ and the intimacy we have with him and our identity that is found in him, the fullness of life, and to get us focused instead on human tradition and worldly philosophy, where it's about keeping up with the Joneses, which, where it's about what you have and how you look and how you're acting and how successful you are, how good you are at what you're doing, all of those kinds of empty, hollow things, how many boxes we're ticking about how good we're being as a Christian, how many religious things we've done in a day. And Paul's saying, be careful you don't get captive to that, to the thing Jesus was warning about in Matthew. A.W. Tozer, in his newest book, The Crucified Life, says it like this. It is possible to be religious and not forsake the world. It is possible to forsake the world in body, yet not forsake it in spirit. It's possible to forsake the world externally and still be worldly inside. Yet nobody can be a Christian in the right sense of the word unless they have forsaken the word world. If we look like we've forsaken the world on the outside, but we're still embracing it on the inside, we're not being careful. And if we're not being careful, then we are participating in getting ourselves robbed of the full life Jesus came to give us. Because as Kevin Armstrong said, we can't even enter into the kingdom of God experience if we're living for ourselves. The Bible tells us we can't serve two masters. Mark Batterson says in his book, Whisper, as I see it, we have two options, an alter ego 
or an alter ego. Having an alter ego means pretending to be who we're not, and it's absolutely exhausting. The other option is to put our ego on the altar and find our full identity in Jesus Christ. That's how we silence the loudmouth ego, or pride. Putting our ego on the altar means accepting God's assessment of who we are, the apple of his eye. That's our identity. Jesus didn't give his life on the cross for us so that we could be absolutely exhausted, so that we could be spinning our wheels trying to get the praise and approval of others. He came to give us a full life. And in Matthew 11, he says that he even came to offer us rest, his yoke, which is light. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me because I'm gentle in this. I'm humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Our alter ego is going to get us exhaustion and absolutely no reward from our Father. An alter ego will get us the template for how to please our Heavenly Father because we will be modeling ourselves after Christ's humble heart, which draws us into an intimate relationship with Jesus, which is where we get our reward from our Father. Jesus is saying, be careful because he knows that we won't get what we need or what's best for our lives if we're externally focused. And he wants us to understand he'd much rather the mess outwardly that comes from a humble heart that's decided to be obedient and not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, rather than perfection externally that's actually hiding pride, something that is deadly. So what does this look like for us today? We talked about some of the examples that Jesus used that were kind of current for his day. What would it look like for us? What things might we engage in that God would be saying, hmm, that's a righteous act being done before men? Maybe it's that we like to quote scripture in public, talk about how much we know about the Bible because it makes us look really knowledgeable. Maybe we attend every single service there is faithfully We're here in body, but we're not here in our mind or in our hearts. Maybe we're always doing things for other people. Anytime there's an opportunity to serve, we're serving. We're also making sure people know we're serving. Maybe we're performing when we're doing something up here on the stage, and it's that. We're performing, putting on a show. Maybe we act like the perfect family in public and we don't bother to dispel that myth that actually we're just like everybody else. Maybe we never say we're sorry. Maybe we always have to be right and never let on that we actually don't know some things because we're too attached to looking like we have it all together to everyone else. Maybe we sit in the pew on Sunday morning and we're nodding our heads like we're totally engaged in what's being talked about We're busy thinking about who else in the congregation it applies to, not us. Maybe we like to let people know the latest book we've read, how many we've read, so we look well-read. Those are just a few examples. The list is endless. I'm sure you can think of a bunch yourself. I want to share with you what it looked like for me. I am what you would call a recovering perfectionist, and a recovering approval seeker. I learned at a really young age that I preferred 
what it felt like to get praise for doing something right than to get in trouble for doing something wrong. And as a really young girl, I discovered I liked the feeling of making other people happy with me. I also fell in love with Jesus at a really young age, and I genuinely wanted to please him too. So this became my way of life as I grew up. Stay out of trouble, please the people around me, do the right things I was supposed to do so I would look like a good Christian, and please Jesus. That was what informed everything that I did. And it sounds harmless, right? I was making good choices and I was trying to honor God. But with every choice that I made, it morphed into this striving for perfection and the approval of others. And that striving for perfection became fed by the approval of others. And I didn't actually feel okay like I was doing all right unless I was getting the approval of others. I never actually thought I was perfect, but I sure felt like I was supposed to be. And that drove me. I became a slave to those two things. And somewhere along the way, and I don't even know when it happened, that just pure-hearted, genuine desire to please Jesus became tainted and choked and corrupted by perfectionism and approval-seeking. And if I'm honest, I don't even know, I never even realized that that was happening, that I was entrapped in those two things, in bondage to them. Pride doesn't always look like puffed-up arrogance. If we aren't being careful in heeding Jesus' warning to beware, it can grow out of the most beautiful of intentions. I thought I was being God-honoring. I was doing all the right things. I was staying away from all of the bad things. But I was a slave. And there was no reward for that behavior. My striving for perfection invaded everything. It invaded how I dressed. It invaded what I said. It invaded what I did and didn't do. It invaded my relationship with Jesus, how I underlined my Bible, what concordances were okay and not okay to use when I was studying because there was approval attached to some and not to others. Like, it took over everything in my life, right down to how I did my hair. And I can tell you, if you want a perfect example of how deluded we can become when something other than a pure motivation in our heart for Jesus takes over, take a look at this picture of my hair. I thought that looked good. It was perfect, not because it looked good, but because I glued it in place. There was this like helmet halo that followed me everywhere I went so that wind, hail, gale force hurricanes could not move that hair. Todd used to be worried that he was going to lose an eye because it was so hard if he came close to hug me. If you want to know that he fell in love with me for who I am and not my looks, he actually fell in love with me when that was on my head. (laughs) I joke, but I'm actually also very serious. Because this picture of my hair is a metaphor for me of how I had lost my ability to see because of pride. This do what's right, try and be perfect in your own strength, seek the approval of others, don't make a mistake, work really hard, 
don't do this, do that, follow this, don't follow that way that I was living had blinded me to what was actually happening to me. It wasn't just my hair that was immobilized. I was in bondage. I use the words recovering perfectionist and recovering approval seeker. Anyone in Celebrate Recovery would be able to tell you why. Because when you have become broken free of something that the enemy has had you in a stronghold in, you have to continue to partner with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to stay free so you don't slip back into your old way of behaving. So while I am free from those chains that so easily entangled me and perfectionism and approval seeking are no longer the bosses of me, praise Jesus, I have to stay on guard. I have to heed Jesus' warning and be careful because I never want to go back to that again. And I know the enemy is just sitting there waiting to woo me back into that. So now I'd rather have somebody have an accurate picture of me, warts, failures and all, than slide down that slippery slope of approval seeking, which I know leads right into the clutches of pride. And I know the enemy's sitting right there drooling, just waiting for me. And I don't ever want to go back to that. Do you know what happens when we start living for the external instead of the internal? We become blinded. We become blinded to our own sin. We start thinking that what we're portraying on the outside is actually who we are and we start to make that our identity instead of Jesus Christ as our identity. And I can tell you that is a stronghold that will destroy us if we don't ask Jesus to protect us and break us free and help us stay on guard against it. John Eldridge says, God's making us holy by making us whole and he's making us whole by making us holy. See, we're all recovering from something, aren't we? That's why Jesus came. That's why he died, because he knew each and every one of us sitting here today either had something he needed to free us from, or we have something we need him to free us from still. It's why he died for us. So every Sunday we come to the table and we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. That he died for us so we could have a full life. He allowed his body to be broken for us so that he could take the punishment for our sins. He let his blood be shed for us to wash us clean, to establish this new covenant where we have the ability to have this gap, this um, spot between us and God bridged. The cross is the altar upon which we can lay ourselves down and take on the identity of Christ, that precious, spotless Lamb of God. So we take the bread that represents his body and the juice that represents his blood, and we take it in remembrance of him because it's the power of the cross that frees us and the power of the cross that lets us have this relationship with Almighty God, this loving Father who wants us close to him, who warns us about things that get in the way of us and him because nothing pleases him more than us having eyes only for him, where his reward is our only motivation. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and I'm going to read from Ephesians 2 for us and then I'll pray for these emblems. 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Lord Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the cross. Thank you that you chose to humble yourself to let your body be broken for us and your blood be shed for us so that you could establish a way for us to have access to the Father. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the juice. And Almighty Father, thank you for loving us so much that you would send your Son to do that. Thank you that you care about us. You care about our hearts. You care about our life being lived to the full. So you did this for us so that we could have intimacy with you, access to you. There's nothing better. There's nothing greater. We just give you all the praise and the glory due your name, and we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.